welcome everybody. Uh, good day or good evening or good morning, depending where you're connecting from, for the uh, end of the second week of the uh, Stronger Together Meet the Scholar initiative of the SDR division of the Academy of Management. Uh, my name is Paola Versa. I am uh, the SDR Communication Director and I'm one of the officers of the SDR division. And uh, we are here today to interview, to know better, one of the greatest scholars of our time in the field of management, uh, Margarete Guiersema. Uh, thank you, Margarete, for being with us today. It is a great pleasure, really, to have you here. And I would like to take the, the chance to, to thank uh, for the organization of this uh, uh, series of uh, interviews and um, meetings, virtual meetings. Uh, first of all, our division chair, Samina Karim, which is here. Thank you, Samina, for your energy, your passion. Uh, the fantastic uh, group of people that support this, this initiative, starting with Eunice Reed uh, from Seattle University that is today uh, with us and uh, in general all the um, engagement uh, chair um, committee that is supporting uh, this fantastic opportunity to be connected despite the difficult times we are all going through and the Jiao Luo also for a great support with the, the Meet the Scholar and many other events but uh, before you know uh, letting the the floor to Marguerite I would like just to say uh, a very few things about uh, her outstanding career, outstanding results uh, and uh, achievements. This is probably the, the most challenging uh, moment for, an uh, for, for a person like me doing the interview because, uh, you know, it's really tough to squeeze uh, so many accomplishments in one slide. So we'll just have to, you know, barely surface some of the, the few things that uh, she's done, but um, there are many more, of course, in her CV. So, uh, Marguerite is Dean's Professorship in Strategic Management at the Paul Mirage School of Business at University of California, Irvine. She received her uh, PhD in Corporate Strategy at the University of Michigan. And uh, she received uh, a really long, long list of very important awards and recognitions, which include, but not only, an honorary PhD from Copenhagen Business School, uh, and we, we also, she's been uh, um, in the Strategic Management Society Fellow, elected, uh, Distinguished PhD Alumni Award from the Ross School of Business, International Fellow for the Advanced Institute of Management Research in the UK, and many, many several, you know, research and teaching awards. A really impressive list, uh, Margaret, going through your CV was really fantastic, you know, seeing how many things you've achieved. Uh, she served uh, as associate editor at the Strategic Management Journal and currently she's senior editorial board of uh, Global Strategy Journal and associate editor at the Academy of Management Perspectives. Um, she served on various committees, among which uh, the board of director of the Strategic Management Society, and she was past president of the Corporate Strategy and Governance Group of the Strategic Management Society. Uh, she is one of the leading experts uh, globally in corporate strategy and corporate governance. She explores how capital market constituents influence board and executive decision making. She's really addressed incredibly important topics for uh, today's management, among which the role of gender diversity. Uh, she published over 50 articles and uh, as of this morning, uh, she has more than 11,000 Google Scholar citation. So truly, truly impressive. 
Margarita, if I forget, forgot anything, please, you know, feel free to add. But um, this said, um, uh, my, the first question we, we start with, uh, you know, after welcoming you is to, if you can please give us, you know, um, your story, you know, what was your, your path, your journey uh, to decide to do a PhD uh, in, uh, in management and later on, you know, become a, an academic. So where does your inspiration uh, come from? Um, well, it wasn't something that I always had on my mind. I never even thought about a PhD, to be quite honest. Um, I went right from undergraduate to uh, getting an MBA at the University of Michigan. And um, my interest was in corporate finance. I was sort of on the quantitative side. And I really had no interest in having a PhD at all. Uh, when I entered the MBA program at Michigan, I was very um, interested in working and getting an MBA and getting a, a corporate job. But while I was in my MBA program, um, I was taking all the advanced classes that required calculus, um, like the advanced statistics, which had a lot of doctoral students in it, if, as you can imagine. Um, and I met my future husband at the time he was in the doctoral program at Michigan. And he was the one that kind of said, oh, you know, you really ought to think about a PhD. And so I wasn't all that enthused with the idea, but you know, he kind of put the idea in my mind. And I was taking all the accounting classes and all the finance classes and pretty much acing everything, which is unusual in accounting. Um, and the head of the accounting department basically talked to me and said, oh, you know, you ought to get a PhD in accounting. So I applied to a few programs in PhD in accounting and got into all of them. And um, as the uh, second year of my MBA started to end, you know, around May, I came to the conclusion I really, really didn't want to do any more studying. I was tired of school. So I basically um, asked the schools to delay my entrance. And they all said yes. And then I went on the job market and ended up working in corporate America and getting a job at uh, General Motors headquarters in Detroit on their financial staff. And so that's what I did for uh, several years. And I aborted my PhD plans, okay. Um, and anyway, while working for General Motors, on the finance staff um, is what perked my interest in strategy. So I realized that I didn't really, you know, all of the strategic decisions at GM were made by the finance staff, if you can imagine this. Um, everything was done by the finance staff. So uh, while I was there, I went through several different positions. And um, this was in the late 70s when the auto industry was undergoing tremendous upheaval because of the second shock, um, uh, the oil of uh, the Shah of Iran and then the uh, OPEC had sent uh, you know, tremors through the uh, economy, but particularly the auto industry because of the cost of oil. And um, so there were major strategic decisions being made about uh, product line having to downsize and becoming more fuel efficient. Um, all, you know, at the same time, we were also trying to meet EPA requirements in terms of emissions. And all of those decisions were happening at the corporate level and being on the finance staff, we got very involved with those decisions. 
The other decision that was being made at the time was uh, General Motors was highly vertically integrated, like uh, the most of any auto in, uh, company in the world. They made everything. The only thing they didn't really make was the glass and the um, steel and the uh, tires. But I mean, to give you an idea, they made their own chips, they made their own radios. Um, it's amazing how much they made. And so that's very costly to do at UAW wages. And so the last uh, position I had was in the transfer pricing area. And there were major disputes going on internally because of inflation, the cost of parts were going up, but the car divisions couldn't pass that on in higher prices to the consumer. So what happened is all of the car divisions were in the red, losing money and all of the parts divisions were positive in the black. And so this led to a dispute at the executive level, which I had to write the memo for about how to settle this dispute. And that's, you know, that kind of experience really made me realize how strategy was really the area I was interested in on uh, solving these kinds of major decisions about vertical integration. Um, in the particular dispute had to do with uh, radios which were being produced in Kokomo, Indiana, uh, UAW wages, um, and uh, the lead division for buying radios had gone outside and gotten an, uh, a, a, you know, make buy, had gotten a buy uh, bid from Panasonic for like half the price of what the radio was, exact same spec radio was being made for in Kokomo, Indiana. So I had to tease this all out. And while it was only, a case dealing with the radio and Kokomo, Indiana and the Buick division. It was the case that was being used to test all the make and buys with regards to the supply chain. So it was like the landmark case that was going to settle whether or not we had to buy into internally or we could go outside and save money. So needless to say, it was those kind of um, kind of corporate uh, decision making that I got involved with while at GM, which made me realize that I really didn't want a PhD in accounting, <laughs> okay? And uh, so um, I was doing pretty well at the corporate level. My bo boss was Jack Smith, who was the CFO at the time. And he eventually became um, CEO of GM. And my husband was cont continually kind of nagging me saying, you know, you really ought to think about going back and getting that PhD and da 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 da. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I really like this corporate life. I like making money. <laughs> I like having new cars. Um, so it was kind of So we hard. really have to thank him because you became a scholar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And I think what happened at GM is they kept moving me up. And um, in General Motors, the finance staff um, is the route to the top. That's where all the CEOs come from. And my next career move was moving to the treasurer's office in New York. And that move did not appeal to me. Living in New York didn't appeal to me when I was 20 some. It doesn't appeal to me today, okay? It is not a city, it's a city I love to visit. It's a city I would never wanna live in. Um, so they, they said, oh, you gotta go and uh, work in the TO's office. And I had been to New York uh, having to go there on business trips. And so I said, man, I said, of all the places that you're gonna send me, this is not really where I wanna spend my time. Uh, so that kind of propelled me to think, okay, I either have to move to the TO's office or I have to go back and get my PhD. So that was the two uh, pathways I was thinking about. 
And so um, I said, well, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take a leave of absence and start a doctoral program and see how it is. And if I don't like it, I can always go back. But when I decided to pursue a doctorate, I realized I didn't wanna do it in accounting anymore. So at that point, I reapplied into strategy programs. And believe it or not, there weren't that many PhD programs in strategy. And again, I got accepted to the ones I applied to, and um, I en ended up staying in Ann Arbor and going to Michigan. And Michigan's program was fairly new. They'd only had a couple of graduates. And uh, I started uh, the PhD program there. And at the, the faculty, the, the strategy department was not a part of the management department. It was separate. It was a strategy department. And uh, I ended up working for... Um, um, Bill Hall, who was uh, on faculty then, and then he left and took an executive job at Cummins Engine, and then he um, let me work with, uh, he suggested I work with CK Pro a lot, so that's how I ended up working with CK. But it was a very difficult PhD program. I, I would not, I mean, not difficult in the sense of hard, but difficult in the sense of, I found it very hard to be a PhD student. I did not enjoy it. Um, I was making more money than the professors were that were uh, in the program at General Motors for one. So it was a huge financial sacrifice. As I tell people who apply to PhD programs after they have an MBA, it's a negative net present value. It will be for your entire life, okay? Um, but the worst thing was the ego, right? Um, here I was writing executive memos being signed by the executive vice president. And all of a sudden you're a grunt, uh, indentured servant to the likes of, of newly minted professors that have never seen a factory floor. So it was a very de demoralizing experience. Um, I got along with CK because CK what, didn't treat people that way, but most of the, our junior faculty were pretty, treated the doctoral students pretty poorly, uh, which by the way, is just the way I think doctoral students get treated generally. I've discovered that while I was at Michigan. But um, I persisted, and I wouldn't have probably persisted if it wasn't for my husband constantly reminding me that I should look at the light at the end of the tunnel rather than the tunnel. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I made it through, and uh, working with CK helped because CK basically gave me free reign and didn't really impose anything. And he and I got along really, really well because I had come from uh, business and had a very business-oriented uh, perspective and was very much phenomena driven rather than theoretically driven. And he, of course, is very phenomena driven. So uh, he and I got along and I was actually his first doctoral student. Wow, <laughs> this is quite something. And uh, Margarita, uh, how did your thesis uh, come about? Like how did you develop the ideas of your, of your dissertation? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very phenomena driven. So when I was working in General Motors, um, I, 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 you know, a lot of young people don't realize what the 1970s and 80s were like. Uh, when I tell my students that the Federal Reserve rate was 20%, they don't believe me. I said, Google it, <laughs> Google it. When the Federal Reserve rate, which is the prime rate that they're charging banks, is 20%, what do you think a car loan rate is, right? Or any of the uh, mortgage rate. 
So um, the economy, um, the inflation that rippled through the global economy was so immense that it led to a lot of major changes in companies. And part of that was that um, uh, a lot of companies just realized their vertical integrated supply chains were very costly when you have inflation like that. So they started to outsource to lower cost, mostly to Asia, but sometimes to Mexico as well. But the other thing that was happening was globalization in, in the economy. You know, the inroads that the Japanese were making in the US were pretty significant during the 80s, and especially in the auto industry and the electronics industry. And so there was a lot of upheaval in corporate America during this time period. And so I was, uh, you know, saw that this was happening firsthand, you know, in the industry I was in. But, it, you know, the auto industry is the largest industry in the world. And so it, it was happening everywhere. It wasn't just the auto industry. It was happening, you, you name it, anything that was being manufactured was undergoing upheaval. So um, I realized that companies were really what I would call restructuring to deal with the high cost of it due to inflation, which was all due to energy prices. So what was happening is companies were basically looking at their business portfolios and realizing that they were too vertically integrated and that they were in businesses that they shouldn't be in. And so there was a lot of uh, getting rid of assets that they had had in their portfolios, uh, you know, re-examining their business portfolios. At the same time, uh, you know, not quite at the same time, but the period of the 1980s, starting in the mid 80s, we had the first um, incidents of what we would call uh, the capital market, you know, where um, raiders started to go after companies that were not maximizing shareholder value. So we had a, a, what we call a market for corporate control. So I wanted to examine what was happening from a restructuring standpoint. We all had to read Ramel's uh, thesis in our PhD program, and he had looked at diversification. And what I was witnessing was the reverse, which was getting rid of things and focusing rather than diversifying. So I wanted to look at what I called uh, strategic reorientation or redirection. And that's what my dissertation was. And back then we had a dissertation, not papers. So I wanted to see what was going on in the corporate portfolios. So I basically took a random sample of the Fortune 1000 and examined their corporate portfolios from 1973 to 1980. Because uh, I started my doctoral program in 1980. So I examined what was going on in their corporate portfolio. And I had an economic perspective because I had, an, like I said, a strong quant background. Plus, I took all the PhD classes in econ at, in, at uh, Michigan. So I was looking at your typical sort of model where you would say economic factors are driving uh, restructuring. But back then, there was no such thing as CompuStat data. You, you literally had to go into the library and with a microfiche reader and uh, look at the uh, SEC filings and um, hand code what was going on with the portfolio data. The only thing that was electronic was the actual performance data, like return on assets, but things like uh, lines of business, you'd have to hand code. So when I was doing that on 200 firms over an eight-year period, I also started to observe something that I hadn't thought theorized about, but seeing this, you know, was sort of um, 
from the data, it came from the data, was that there wasn't just upheaval in the, in the portfolios of these companies, but there was a lot of upheaval in the executive suite. So I started to code that data as well. And it wasn't, you know, when I, when I did my proposal defense, I didn't have it as one of my explanatory variables and I hadn't really theorized about it. But when I started collecting data, I said, look, this is something that I see, so I have to code it and capture it. So I did. So the, I would say the, the nice thing about doing that is in your, in, with your in the raw data, you see things that you don't see when you're in the electronic data file. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because if I'd not seen that, I probably wouldn't have coded it, right? So I started coding who was CEO, who was president, who was chair for this eight year period. And um, when I started to analyze um, uh, the results as to what led to restructuring, lo and behold, the major explanatory variable were not economic things like financial performance or industry performance or any of the kind of typical economic characteristics, but instead it was changes at the top. So that's what kind of led me to um, the paper that I probably am the most known for, which came right out of my dissertation which is top management team composition and strategic change. Fantastic, that's super, super interesting. It, it looks like a lot of work back at the time, you know, hand code all this data and uh, probably something that uh, if told to a PhD today, they would probably go crazy just to the idea of having to hand code anything. But, so you, you mentioned, um, in, in this journey, uh, a couple of people that were incredibly influential for you, your husband on the motivation of the PhD, uh, uh, CK for, for, you know, more the supervi supervisory and, you know, the, probably also the academic, um, let's say, inspiration. Are, what are the people that have inspired you the most, uh, either for good or bad terms? You know, there's some of the people before you in other interviews also mentioned without mentioning name oh you know this experience this negative experience really made me understand i hate to do things in a different way so what were the the people or the cathartic moment that really inspired you well i can't really you know my husband is the one that's responsible for me being an academic there's no question because after that first year of my doctoral student i was ready to go back to general motors okay i mean it was not an easy road um the doctor students I was with, the group that we were with, was really high caliber. Um, Harbir Singh, who's at Wharton, uh, Gary Hansen, who went to uh, University of Washington, uh, and Rajan Kamath, uh, also who went to University of Washington. So there were four of us. Uh, Harbir was two years ahead, but we were the first group of doctoral students. And we kind of mutually uh, supported each other because all of us got treated like dirt, okay, <laughs> right, uh, by various faculty members. And I was probably the most outspoken, which probably doesn't surprise anybody, but <laughs> um, we had one older professor who had his DBA from Harvard, so he knew, he didn't know how to do research worth squat, who felt, he, he wrote textbooks, he, his textbooks on entrepreneurship were bestsellers, and he wrote lots of cases. So he viewed us as slave labor for his uh, cases, right? So he came to me and said, I could do a case for you. I, could, uh, I would like you to do a case for, for me on the, um, uh, General Motors at the time was building a, a giant new Cadillac plant in a part of Detroit called Hamtramck, which was the Polish part of town. 
And there were a lot of uh, protests because they were demolishing this um, very historic area, including a uh, Catholic church. So there was a lot of protest around this new giant plant that they were building. And he wanted me to write a case about it because he knew I worked for GM and he figured I could get access and so forth. And he was gonna pay me the princely sum of $1,500 to write this case, but it would have to be a case that was polished enough that it could be used. It wasn't a draft of a case. And he had offered this to me like some kind of plum assignment. And I told him that if he could find somebody to do all that for 1500, let me know and I'll hire him. <laughs> and the rest of the doctoral students heard what I said to this old guy, you know, a senior professor and basically said, fuck you in so many polite words, then they realized, you know, Marguerite is pushing the boundaries. She's telling them, stop, you know, stop treating us like dirt, you know? So I, I think that experience, um, you know, all of us having to go through it together, um, it made it more tolerable that it wasn't just you as an individual that was being, you know, subjected to um, being treated like a servant. So that was part of it. And I think that's why um, CK had to be my advisor, otherwise I wouldn't have survived because he didn't do that. He was the only one that didn't do that. He treated you like an equal. And he was actually more interested in hearing what I could uh, shared about my experience and, and using it, you know, like his article on uh, dominant logic, um, the ideas behind that are very much based on what was going on in American industry, that they had to focus, right? That they couldn't just do everything anymore. So, but I can't really, you know, if I think of anyone else, um, it's just um, from my own, you know, people I've worked with, I've had a lot of good co-authors. I've almost all my work, I would say almost all, practically all, all my work has been co-authored um, initially with colleagues and more recently with doctoral students. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So it really seems like your, you know, professional experience before your academic path was very important for at least, you know, moving the first steps into really meaningful research question, both for academic, academic audiences, but also for practice. And this also might be the reason why you received so many also teaching awards and impact awards. You think there's a strong connection there. You, you managed to really understand executives, not just scholars. Yes, I, I, I personally, I view myself as having a foot in both camps, a foot in the academic world and a foot in the business world. And um, it's always been my love. I mean, I haven't changed, even though I'm an academic. I still read the Financial Times every day. I read the New York Times business section. I kind of keep abreast um, of what's going on. And, um, you know, I think I'm an oddity. I, I think the academia, academic, academia has become scholarly focused and not very much business focused. And I get frustrated because I, I think we've lost focus of what we're doing. It would be like if medicine was no longer aware of the patient and they were in, you know, in a science lab and figuring out treatments for a patient without seeing the patient. Uh, no one in their right mind would uh, imagine that medical schools shouldn't have patients as part of the education. And yet that's exactly what's happening in business education. And everything is becoming theory driven. And, um, and you know, a lot of times, I mean, I served as AE at SMJ for almost 10 years. 
and as reviewer before that and reviewer for the other journals, and you see these papers and people are writing about something and they know nothing about the phenomena they're writing about, not even basic information. So it's a frustration for me that um, management scholars don't understand the phenomena that they're trying to study and they don't even spend a little bit of time understanding the phenomena before they go off and hypothesize. Because <laughs> okay? a lot of this stuff is just not useful as a result. It's not really applicable. It doesn't really make sense, right? And in my area, especially corporate governance, it's very practice oriented. There aren't any stellar theories in the corporate governance area. I mean, agency theory has been around forever. But other than that, what theory can you point to that says this is, you know, a way to understand what goes on in boardrooms, or this is a way to understand what happens at the executive suite. So, you know, part of it is really, you know, you need to understand what it is that you're studying before you start theorizing about it. Mm, wonderful. So uh, moving a bit, you know, forward. So uh, your first uh, academic appointment after your PhD and, you know, leaving the, the struggle of a, a, a junior academic, how, how did you cope with that? And what kind of advice do you have for people who are in that condition now, you know, probably in, different, you know, in a different time with different pressures and uh, different priorities maybe? Well, I don't think I can relate to what people today have to deal with, right? Uh, it's a completely different market. Um, today, it's very hard to get a good job and uh, you have to have an A journal pub almost to even get an interview. I really pity the um, junior people that are finishing doctoral programs and trying to get a job. It's so, so competitive. Um, and I tell my doctoral students, you're not going to even get an interview unless you have something on your Vita. When I graduated, the norm wasn't having nothing on your Vita, not even a working paper, because you were doing this giant dissertation, right? And it was very, very unusual to have any publications on your Vita in the strategy domain. Um, when I was on the market, the top person on the market was a guy named James Robbins, Jim Robbins. And he had a solo authored ASQ. He was such an oddity for having a solo authored ASQ that he had an interview at all the top business schools and had offers from all of them, including Stanford. Uh, so just to give you an idea of how odd it was to have a publication that you stood out. So um, when I graduated, I was getting plenty of interviews and plenty of job offers. It wasn't at all like what you have today where you really, it's a competitive marketplace. And um, so I, it, it wasn't that difficult to get a job. Um, the, the, the bigger difficulty was probably getting tenure, <laughs> but getting a job was not, not a problem. Um, getting tenure, of course, is a different issue. At the same time that I was on the job market, and I was on the job market for two years because my husband and I had this dual career situation, which uh, created a situation where we didn't get an optimal result, so we had to do this twice. But in any case, I, I was determined to live in California was the part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> if I would have been happy in the Midwest, we would have gotten, both had professorships at Indiana, but that didn't happen. But anyway, um, so the other aspect of, of, uh, of getting, uh, you know, um, a job is making it and getting tenure. And so the year that I went on the job market, Northwestern came, um, terminated all their strategy faculty. Um, 
Stanford terminated their strategy faculty. Uh, there were a couple other schools in that. Basically, no, I don't know if you know what Northwestern did. They abolished the strategy department. Did you know that? No, yeah, they I didn't abolished know. It. I forget who the guy was. I interviewed with them at Academy. They were hiring. And the next thing I know is the department is abolished. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even interview anyone. It, um, the econ group, the game, game theory group, took over strategy at Northwestern. And at Stanford, they hired um, business consultants to teach. Okay. Mm. So, um, so anyway, so at the same time that the market was rich to get jobs, there were these very high profile schools that were saying that strategy is not a discipline and we're abolishing it because there are no theoretical roots. And people don't realize there was actually this big uh the validity issue with strategy are we really a discipline or are we just a practice because a lot of places the people who taught the, the core strategy class what we would call the business policy class back then were people from business not academics because there were no ac trained academicians mm -hmm. really in the field so anyway um so getting tenure wasn't so much an issue of having five publications, eight publications or whatever it was you needed, but it was whether or not your institution was going to actually say that strategy was a discipline. So you were like being held up as a test of, is this a theoretical discipline that we should actually tenure in? And that's what these struggles were at Stanford and at Northwestern. The people that were up for tenure had plenty of publications, but the issue was they didn't want to recognize the field. Um, and Northwestern still doesn't really have a strategy department. If you look at where Ed Zajac is, he's in the OB management group, right? The strategy group at Northwestern is still a game theory group. So there's this issue, which I think now is a re resolved, but you still have schools that don't fully recognize strategy as a discipline and want to have um, what I would call, um, you know, social science roots. So you have to do work in sociology or economics or psychology, but doing work strictly in what we would call strategy is insufficient to be considered um, um, what worthy of tenure or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, must must have been a very very different different time. And um, what about the things that you know uh, interest you today? I mean, what are the hot topics you're working on, and what do you think maybe also others should pay attention to? We you talked about gender, and that's definitely something I would like to, uh, you know, hear something from you about. Um, well, it's, no, it's a very I important am... topic, but in general, what, what this is your interest? In. Okay, I, I, in general, it's pretty much the same in the sense that I'm very phenomena driven, right? So by looking at what's going on in the business world is what intrigues me. So initially, it was this whole restructuring and portfolio restructuring, you know, what was going on with companies' corporate strategy. And then uh, uh, understanding it from the executive level. Then the period of the 1980s, we saw all this CEO turnover going on. So I started studying CEO succession. Um, I started working with an international trade economist. And we started to look at what was going on uh, in, in the US with regards to the overall corporate portfolios and seeing how globalization and foreign competition were influencing restructuring. So all, all if you look at my pattern of papers, they're very much focused on a phenomena and that phenomena kind of um, moves as, as my interests move. 
So um, what I have become more and more interested in is really corporate governance and particularly the board. And this, this is why I was interested in things like CEO dismissal, as well as misconduct, like the uh, stock option backdating issue, as well as um, more recently issues like um, uh, activist investors and what they're doing to uh, boardrooms and to corporate governance. And then also this issue of board gender uh, diversity, which is a study I, I'm doing with Louise Morse. It's, it's a study we've done, but we're trying to find a home for it is the better way to describe it. But still very much interested in phenomena and understanding what's going on in boardrooms and what's going on in the executive suite, mostly as a result of what I would call financial market constituents. So in this case, it's activist investors. In the past, I've looked at financial analysts. So that's kind of my focus. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only area of research that I would advocate, but that's, you know, I do believe that if you want to have a successful career, you should focus. You shouldn't be a jack of all trades. You shouldn't be doing papers all over the board. It's costly, you know, so it's better to sort of know a literature, know what's, uh, know what has been written and published about that literature and focus so that you can answer a research question and do it in a very precise way. And if you're doing papers all over the board, you're never going to have sort of that necessary detail, attention to detail that you would need to get published mm -hmm. in an A-level. Marguerite, one of the things that I noticed from your CV is that your research, your, your insights are, gets also picked up by the media. And uh, this is, you know, incredibly important in terms of impact because it's a, an important acknowledgement of the fact that our research is not just policy making it, you know, in, in broader sense, in a theoretical sense, but it's actually something that creates change. How do you think that, uh, you know, the literature and the, 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 the research on strategy has been in, in influencing boards in the last decades and what areas with, there's still more work to be done to inform and guide the, the policymakers, the boards of directors going forward? Well, to be quite honest, I don't think we've had any influence. Um, uh, that's, I think, an opportunity um, that we could be somebody that has influence, but I don't think we have. Um, if you look at the corporate governance literature, the finance folks have had far more influence than any field. And then the legal uh, forums have had a lot of influence because obviously uh, corporate governance has a lot of uh, le a legal aspect with regards to uh, board fiduciary duties and so forth. But um, there are a lot of issues with what is going on and it continually changes, right? So in the 1980s, the problem rested with management not really being focused on shareholder value. And at that time, managers were being compensated based on salaries and bonuses. Bonuses were based off of operating profit. And so the whole issue of agency costs came up and the whole agency theory uh, really took hold because everyone recognized that managers were not in line with the shareholders, the owners. And that led to what we call executive compensation based on stock option pay, which turned into an evil of itself. It corrected one evil and created its own evil. And even Michael Jensen, who advocated in his famous Harvard Business Review article, it's not, um, uh, what's the title of that? It's not how, it's not what you pay, but uh, not how much you pay, but what, how you pay, I think mm -hmm. is uh, his article. 
who was advocating for uh, stock option pay to align managers with shareholders. Well, people don't realize that even Jensen has come back and said this has turned itself into a, a real issue. And the issue is, you know, boards are handing out stock option pay without duly noting what the cost is to the shareholders. So it's like uh, being in control of the cookie jar and handing out cookies without actually having to pay for the cookies, which is how the board's functions. So it's a problem, right? But that's a, 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 an example of a problem that the finance people drove and the finance people are now driving the discussion of how to correct and management has had no say in any of that. And say on pay, which is one of the big things that's in front of um, the SEC, is to, to get stronger on say on pay. Right now, it's not a binding resolution. It's just a resolution that's like a recommendation. So you can have a say on pay vote, but the, the, the company, the board, doesn't have to combine, combine to it is a big issue. And it's a big issue for the institutional investors who see that boards are too loose with giving money away, right? Mm -hmm. And it's you know just one very narrow issue, executive compensation. But what people don't realize, executive compensation drives so much behavior that if you are, as a management scholar, are trying to understand behavior, if you aren't familiar with what is going on from an executive compensation standpoint, you don't understand the underlying motivation behind some of this bizarro behavior that you see, right? But there are lots of governance issues. Um, the gender diversity is another governance issue. Um, the United States is abysmal for gender diversity. It's absolutely abysmal. It, if you interview directors in the US, they don't, aren't even aware that our record is below that of Western Europe. All of the European countries have higher women percentages than the US, and not by a small amount. Some of them have 40% and we're at around 20. So you're talking huge you know, gap between where the US is with regards to women on boards versus where Western Europe is today. So again, it's an issue that doesn't really get a whole lot of traction other than these studies that link gender diversity to some kind of outcome, which to me is not all that interesting because outcomes like corporate social responsibility or firm performance are not really driven by an individual. You know, there's a lot of factors that determine things like firm performance. So if you really wanna understand what's going on and what the impact of gender diversity is, you can't just link it to some firm organizational level outcome. So that's an, another example, but it would be nice that management scholars would have more of a say and more of an influence in the debate that's going on. Um, you know, again, stock option pay, corporate misconduct, those are all issues that get a lot of attention. And the drivers of both of those issues have been our finance and accounting colleagues, not the management scholars. Well, thank you very much. As we're getting towards uh, the end of the first uh, hour, I'd like to shift slightly more into a bit more personal questions and maybe some advice that you can have. So you seem to have been uh, quite successfully managed to, uh, you know, have a, a successful uh, couple's career, you know, managing the, the couple's objective in the sense that, you know, you imposed your husband to go to California. That was a great outcome for both, I guess, <laughs> a great place to be. But jokes apart, um, for people uh, that are managing, especially in the first uh, phases of their life where maybe their contractual power is not that strong, 
uh, dual careers. What would be your advice also in terms of, you know, balancing the pressure for uh, professional performance and, you know, private life? Yeah. I, 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 as I said, the, the nature of the market is so different, right? It's so competitive to get a job. And I think it's equally competitive to get tenure. And um, it's not that the number of publications has uh, risen dramatically. It's still about the same, I think. Uh, in most schools, you, they want to see five age level publications. And then, of course, you have other schools that want to see a lot more than that, but whatever. I think the issue why it make, it's more difficult is that it's more com competitive to get a publication. So that's where the competition lies. It's not the number of publications, it's getting the publication. So if you look at the premier journal outlets, at the time that I graduated from the PhD program, it was only really ASQ, AMJ, AMR, and SMJ, and that was it. Those were the four. Journal management study was a B-level journal. Journal management was a C-level journal at the time I graduated. So now, if we look at today, what we think of A-level journals, the only journal that we would probably add to that list would be org science. So we have five journals that are undisputed A-level, and then some people would add journal management study to that A-list, uh, although most schools in the U.S. don't, believe it or not. So you have a limited number of journals that hasn't really expanded in terms of A-levels. Um, some of them have actually gone to more issues, like SMJ is now, I think, 10 or 11 issues. Um, so it's increased its number. But if you compare that to the number of scholars in strategy and the number of scholars trying to get work into those journals, the, there's a huge divide. The number of publication outlets has gone up at some slope, but the number of, of submissions has gone up geometrically. And that's because the profession has expanded. We're now the bi biggest, I believe, they're the biggest, um, uh, Samina can correct me, division in this uh, uh, academy. If not, we're number two right after OB. We're number, we're number one? Two. We're number well, after two. OB, but just for a short time, Samina okay. said that. But by the time, we're number two, but Samina said we're gonna overtake them soon. So I believe in that. <laughs> okay. Needless to say, we're huge, right? And yet our outlets are not all that much bigger. And in terms of the number of places we can publish and the number of pages each journal has to publish in. So this has led to this just giant competition to get papers into these journals. And that is the competition to get tenure. It's not, it's getting a publication through one of these level, A-level journals. It is so incredibly hard. And, um, if you were to go back and go to the 1980s and look at what's published in AMJ and SMJ, those would be desk rejects, some of those papers. That's how bad some of those papers are compared to the standard today. It is so much higher and it's, you know, higher on all levels, but I'll just address it on the empirical front. Stuff would get re regularly published in SMJ with a significance factors of 0 0.11, 0 0.13. Good luck on that today, right? or R squares of 0 0.03. So you have you know, a field that has gotten so competitive in terms of getting publications through the A-level because of the number of scholars that have grown, the field has grown, it's become international. It's so, so, so competitive. And this is why, you know, if I were to give any advice, it's very important to focus so that you become well-known in an area so that you have a chance of making a mark in an area and the other thing is don't try to do it alone. It is impossible. 
very few people can basically do that level quality journal articles all by themselves you know um it's think of of your colleagues that you're going to work with uh get uh, colleagues that compliment you you know there's no sense in cloning yourself um so you work together productively and that you have a working relationship where both of you benefit and so i always chose junior scholars because everyone at a junior level is hungry to get tenure so you don't have to worry about um, senior people who ha are not motivated. And the other thing is I picked scholars that complimented me. So they had a different perspective, like an econ person versus me being a strategy person or a psychologist versus me being more uh, on the uh, econ side for, for uh, strategy. So look for complementarity in your colleagues that you're gonna work with and make it more than one paper because there's a lot of startup costs working with anyone and if you can get two papers out of working with somebody, then you've gotten efficiency, right? So there's some economies of scale and efficiency. So if you look at my papers, I almost always have at least two papers with every co-author. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's really good. Um, uh, when in, in the, in, I don't know how, if, if you get any free time when you don't publish paper, manage journals, win awards and so on. But in your free time, what do you like doing? And what is your, let's say, what gives you peace of mind, relaxation, energy? Uh-huh. Well, um, I, uh, people will call me a workaholic, first of all, I have to say. I pretty much work seven days a week. Um, I find it, uh, I don't find work, as, you know, tedious. I don't find it uninteresting. So I think that's one of the things about the profession is I enjoy it. Um, and I'd rather, you know, take care of things as they come in than have things pile up on my desk. So I tried to do that. Uh, but in terms of what I find relaxing and enjoying aside from work, um, I, I enjoy traveling. Um, I, I really enjoy meeting um, people and going to um, uh, giving talks at universities and meeting junior scholars and talking to them about their work. I really, really enjoy that a lot. Um, I like giving, you know, feedback to, to people on papers and helping them with their papers. Um, I'm pretty good at framing papers. Um, I think that has something to do with the fact that, that I can kind of see the bigger picture so I can help frame what the motivation for a paper might be. So I really enjoy that. And while I'm traveling, so sort of an academic connection to the travel, but then I also travel and do other things besides the visit to the university, okay? <laughs> and uh, so I try to combine pleasure with um, uh, my uh, profession. And um, as Samina probably knows, I'm a big foodie, okay? So whenever I go anywhere, I plan where I'm gonna eat, <laughs> like months in advance. <laughs> Uh, so, um, you know, I, those things I enjoy on a day-to-day -day basis, the kind of things that I like is I like the peace and quiet in the morning and having my coffee and reading the New York Times and the Financial Times. I enjoy that moment in the day. Probably the, hot, the highlight of the day is the morning having coffee. And then at the end of the day, I uh, equally enjoy sort of uh, decompressing and catching up. And um, so that's kind of me, you know, I, um, that's why where I live is important because I like being able to just go outside and have my coffee or go outside in the evening and have a glass of wine. I, I enjoy having the ability to just go outside and enjoy where I'm at and not having 
you know, not being cooped up. This is why New York would never match with me, okay? I'm a Californian through and through. It had to be California. It had to be California. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> Fantastic. So I think at this point we can, uh, before moving to the Q&A uh, part, we should take a group picture, right? Uh, uh, Samina, will you take the screenshot for us? Sure. If first, I, I like to say, if you're dressed appropriately from the waist up, if you could show your video, that would be great, because I think it always <laughs> adds to the session to be able to see everyone's faces for this for this photo. Um, so I'll give everybody a few seconds to, if you could show your video, that would be great. Then, I see a lot of very nicely dressed people, at least from their exactly, waist up. So, so it's going to be a decent picture. Exactly. All right. And so what I'll do is I'll count to three. So if everyone could look at the at the camera and I'll count to three and then say cheese, okay? So one, two, three, cheese. Cheese. Super, I think we got a good picture. Fantastic, thank you very much, Shamina. This will, will go in our uh, Twitter channel and uh, definitely we'll uh, also have it with the video when, uh, when we post. in a couple of days. So I would now move to the, to the Q&A session we have. Uh, the first one we receive is from uh, Kristen. Um, Kristen, you can, so you can present your question directly to Marguerite. Hi, uh, Professor, and thank you so much for doing this. It's been really, really helpful. You mentioned that you are very phenomenon driven and that the industry is the important part of our research. And I was wondering, how do you best suggest we translate our research to actually make an impact on industry? You mean after you've written a paper? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's very difficult um, to um, have an influence in practice, right? Um, there's the media attention that can help. Um, because people in business don't read academic journals, okay, let's just face it. Um, so there's ways, you know, one, one thing that you can do is try to translate what, what, you've, uh, what your article is about to an HBR online thing, which gets read by a wide audience. Um, the other thing is like when I was doing work on analysts, as an example, I uh, gave a talk at an analyst conference. Um, I, I wrote them an email and said, I'm doing all this research on analysts and their influence on CEO uh, executive succession. Would you be interested in having me as a speaker? And you know, I did a pro bono, but that's another example of how you can influence um, uh, what happens. And then my work on gender, I've presented that at, um, at least five or six different um, meetings and exec ed programs that I haven't been paid for on women to let people know what our research showed, right? So this is sort of like, it's really up to you. They don't come knocking on your door. So you're gonna have to be the one that does the marketing to try to have an influence. Um, and usually an academic paper isn't going to be digested by someone. So you're gonna have to either turn it into talking points or uh, write something shorter um, to, tr to communicate what it is that your research found and how it can potentially impact a particular issue. Um, but I encourage it. Um, I really encourage it. You know, um, I think um, uh, our, it's unfortunate, but our academic journals just don't get read, whereas HBR does, as an example, or MIT or Sloan 
um, th those type of CMR, um, you know, those are more the kind of things that get read by the uh, business practitioner, but there's other ways like uh, hitting the associations, hitting, um, uh, you know, whatever the issue is that you're researching, think about the potential bodies out there that are very focused on that issue and how you could make them aware of what you're doing is, is my suggestion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kristen. Um, so we, we move to the second, second question. Uh, this is from Eunice, right? Sure. Um, I think you've already answered um, partially, but about having a focused pipeline, but could you tell junior faculty how to develop and manage their pipeline and especially how you manage and prioritize multiple projects that you work on? Okay, it's a really good um, tactical question. Uh, I uh, at one time I've, I've given a lot of talks at junior faculty consortia, and what I would suggest doing is having literally a, a spreadsheet, like a flow sheet, where every single one of your projects is listed, and then the stages of that project. You know um, where you are: data collection, theorizing, draft writing. Um, submission to conference, uh, initial submission to journals, all that, and have those as columns across. And literally write, you know, when a project starts and where you are in these projects. Because I think if without some kind of written record of these projects and where they are, it's very hard to keep track of, of the fact that you're falling behind on something, right? So this is like a good way, sort of a spreadsheet, and if anyone's interested, I can send them the spreadsheet later that I concocted at one point, where you basically have your projects as the first column, and then you have these rows, uh, have, have them carry across, and then have them as different various stages. So it's nothing proprietary, it's something that's pretty basic. But the um, good thing about it is it kind of tells you where you are on these projects and keeping abreast of them. And it also tells you, you know, you, you don't want to have four projects all in the data collection stage, right? So you have to have a, a kind of a balance of when papers get submitted, then you can turn your attention to something else. And when they're in the review process, you have something else that you're working on. Um, and so I view the Academy and SMS as a good first draft place to get a project going. So I always look and say to my uh, doctoral students, get a paper into Academy, get a paper into SMS. Only needs to be 10 pages for SMS, you know, it doesn't need to be a full-fledged paper, but it forces you to get something done in a fairly short time period to get it to um, SMS or Academy and get it in there. And then you can then add whatever it is that you need. Usually um, you haven't done a lot of writing or maybe you need more data collection, whatever, to, full, to flush it out a bit more to get to, to the journal stage. So I no longer use this spreadsheet, but I do have, um, a, ta a thing that I keep where every single project is listed and, um, and with specific where is it going to be targeted or where is it under review. And then I keep tabs of everything of that project. So um, to be submitted to Academy of Management 2020. And then after it gets submitted, accepted at Academy of Management uh, to submit to whatever SMJ, AMJ by such and such. I have the goal on there so that I know what I'm trying to do and keep track of it. And so I can look at like, for instance, my recent SMJ on hedge funds, and I can see 
This is when I started it. This was the first Academy presentation. This was when I presented it at SMS. This is when I submitted it to SMJ. This is when it got the R&R. This is when we send it back. So I have this like list. I know where we are on this paper and I can look back and see how long it's taken. It's taken way too long usually, <laughs> okay? But it's a good way of keeping track of projects and then making sure that you re recognize that you have these projects. Now, I'm not recommending eight or nine projects, okay? So I know some people have that, but I think, you know, if you have more than four uh, ongoing projects, you probably have your plate full. Um, so, you know, um, you have the three papers that came out of your dissertation. Hopefully all three are something that you can move forward. And that's what your focus should be the first year or so. And then, you know, if you worked with other people and other projects while you're in your doctoral program, you should continue to do so. And if not, try to develop co-authorships um, uh, when you get out so that you can develop new projects and hopefully new projects that are either closely aligned with what you're doing or something that's not too far-fetched from what you're, what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Marguerite. Um, okay, so we have a question from uh, Razvan. Hi, Margaret. It's nice Hi. to uh, see you again. Um, you might have uh, answered at least partially this question about collaborators. Uh, I was wondering, you know, for yourself, what are attributes that are important when when considering uh, collaborators and then on the other side, thinking of PhD students and junior faculty, uh, what would be your advice uh, when themselves search for, uh, uh, for co-authors? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, what do you look for in collaborators? They have to be smart. <laughs> they have to be well-trained, right? Um, you don't want somebody less than quality than you yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be carrying them. And um, I've seen um, junior faculty work with uh, collaborators that they're carrying. And the one thing you cannot afford as a junior faculty is to carry someone else. That is a, you will drown. It's, they call it a double drowning, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you need to have people that are as capable or uh, as good as you are, because otherwise you're going to be carrying them. And what do I mean by carrying them? Well, they might be smart, but they're not motivated and they're not turning things around. Um, maybe they don't have an academic job that has the same pressures for publishing um, and therefore they're not as motivated or maybe they just don't have the motivation internally or whatever. You can't afford to have those kind of co-authors. They will drown you. Uh, you'll be waiting on them and you'll do 80 to 90% of the work and you'll still have a co-author on the paper. So you have to find someone that is going to be willing to put in as much effort as you are and that has the capabilities so that you're not carrying that person and they're likewise not carrying you. And that can be a very productive collaboration. Now, everyone has different work habits. Um, usually when you're working with somebody on a paper, the nice thing is when you dump it to them, the paper's off your desk and you can work on another paper while they're doing their part. Because uh, it's kind of hard to work on the paper simultaneously. Uh, so that's another way of managing more projects is that you have these co-authors that you can uh, share papers with so that they're not all on your desk at the same time. But it's hard. And um, I, I, I would say that in generally I've been successful at picking or having co-authors that have been good. 
But on the other hand, I also am kind of a slave driver. So I tell them up front, this is my uh, timetable for this piece. If it doesn't fit your timetable, we should not work on it. So I let them know upfront that I wanna get like an academy submission by X or a journal submission by X so that they realize they have to make room for that paper in their time schedule. And if they're not motivated to do that, then find a different co-author to do it with or rationalize that you're willing to submit to their time calendar because things always take longer than what your uh, ambition will be. So you can say you're going to get this by such and such and you can always push it back. So you have to realize that whatever target you put is probably not the realistic target. So if they're not willing to adhere to, or at least to try to attempt to adhere to that target, you know it's going to get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And in terms of seniors, okay, I never co-authored with anyone senior to me ever. Uh, CK and I never co-authored anything. Um, and we never even had a draft of anything, just to let you know. So it wasn't even um, something that we didn't even try. Uh, but I know a lot of junior people co-author with their advisors, and that's not a bad strategy. That's uh, a good way of, of getting a lot of, pub, um, of uh, productivity. Plus, you're learning a lot in the publication process, right? Um, it's not something they really teach you in grad school. It's what I call an apprenticeship. And the only way you can really learn how to publish at the A level is to do it with someone who's gone through it. Uh, when I um, do a seminar on how to publish in uh, a good quality journal and I send them one of my papers at the first stage and I send them the reviewer responses, um, I, I usually use my old ASQ article as an example. And I let them read the reviews of the, pa of the paper. Everyone is like, oh my God, this paper is never gonna get published. You know, because reviews are always negative, right? Show me a positive review. Uh, and I try to tell them, you know, that this is part of the process was learning to get over the negativity of the reviews because reviews are very, very critical. And um, if you can't get over that, you're not gonna be a productive scholar. So you have to get over the sort of psych damage it might do to you, which is considerable by the way. And you also have to learn how to address these type of comments in a way that you can convince the reviewers that you know what you're talking about, that you know, you've done your due diligence and you're doing the extra work that they're asking for. So there's, there's this whole apprenticeship of getting work published in a, it's, a, it's a process you have to learn by. So that's something that someone who's published in those journals can help you with, right? To, to show you how they, how they do it and what works for them. And that's why working with senior scholars can be very productive. The negative of working with senior scholars, especially if it's your advisor, is that eventually you're going to go for tenure and then you're going to get the big question is, is this their work or your work? So you have to be kind of careful and realize that at the same time, you have to create your own identity so that it's very clear what your identity is. If the work is all dissertation related and your advisor is on it, it's usually easier than if you've been working with your advisor on other stuff. But you there is at tenure time there's always this question of is it your work or is it your advisor's work when you're working with a senior scholar that you're going to have to deal with thank you um margaret we have a question from mark thank you thanks margaret this has been uh, really informative so um i i have a question about uh i mean i in my question box i cited your amp amp piece because uh, i really like it on the activist hedge funds with albert but I was wondering how you balance 
this tension maybe, or maybe it's not tension, but between shooting for an A journal that, you know, you have a really good shot at getting in an A or taking ideas that, you know, maybe aren't suitable for an A journal and they might end up at a different outlet, but the importance of getting the ideas out there. So how do you strike that balance between always shooting A's and always the ideas you really love and want to get out there going to a different journal? You know, it's a good question, but I've never really done that. That's the issue. Um, uh, I don't know anyone that targets a B journal, all right, to be quite mm -hmm. honest. Um, I think everyone tries to hit for an A because there's the one thing I've learned. Um, uh, oh, what was it? Okay. It was, it was the article um, in CMR that I actually got asked to write on um, because uh, it was a special issue on cognitive influences on manager. And I assumed it was going to be an easy paper, easy reviews, easy acceptance. And it was like, what a beer. If I would have known it was such a beer, I would have never done it. <laughs> I like going, this is for CMR. And then, you know, it gets published in CMR and in the, in the, the year it comes out, the FT removes CMR from their FT list. <laughs> okay. It's like, oh my God, what, what about so much work, right? So the amount of work to send something to a B journal and an A journal is going to be about the same. So I would not suggest starting at a B journal. Um, I would always suggest starting at an A. Now there are some things that are going to make it uh, impossible to publish at an A. Like if you have um, data that is just not strong, you're going to have a really hard time uh, getting published at A. And then you might want to think, okay, I've already done this. I've already collected the data. I've already analyzed it. Uh, the data is not all that strong. Uh, so it's probably not going to make it at an A. But I always start with, if the data isn't very strong, then I'm dropping the project. Because if I can't get good data, I don't want to do the project, right? So I kind of think about the data before I start uh, making it a project. But um, if your idea is like, um, uh, you use my AMP paper about hedge funds, that, that kind of paper in AMP is not a paper that you would write for any other journal. AMP is kind of an unusual uh, outlet, like AME Learning and some, some other outlets. So there are journals that cater to more what I call think pieces or uh, non-empirical pieces um, that um, provide an opportunity for you to write something that is of a different uh, venture, you know, not a typical theory paper or not, and certainly not a typical empirical paper. And then you might want to think about the outlet that you're writing for. Um, but again, that's a very high risk um, strategy. If the paper didn't get into AMP, where would it go? There aren't a whole lot of other outlets like AMP. Um, so you have to think about the fact that you're going to put in a lot of energy into writing a paper for a specific journal, and that journal is it's one of its you know it's one of a kind. So there's not another journal to send it to. Whereas if you have an empirical piece and it gets rejected at SMJ. Then you've got a journal of management study or journal of management. You know, you've got two journals that you can start thinking of immediately and maybe even org science where you could try to float that piece. Whereas if it gets rejected at AMP, I have no idea where you would even send the paper. I don't know other journals like AMP, for instance. And ditto for AMR. So AMR is a good example. Um, I've never published there. Um, I've gone on the record and say I don't really read it, and I got admonished for saying this. I don't know why, 
uh, I thought we had freedom of speech and we could say things like, I don't really read this journal, okay? It's just like, I don't read ASQ, okay? I'll be honest, I don't read either of them. Why not? They don't really do a lot of work in my area. And when they do, I know the article and I look at it. But um, if you write a paper for AMR, which I did once with the co-author, and it gets rejected, tell me, where are you gonna go? Um, you've put in a tremendous amount of effort and if it doesn't get published there, where are you going to send this paper? So, um, by the way, that paper ended up in journal management studies. Um, but do you see what I'm getting at? It's sort of very difficult if you write a particular type of paper and you're, you don't think it's A-level and then you aim for it at a certain level. And then if it doesn't make it there, then where does it go? So you spend a lot of effort at a paper that maybe won't see the light of day. And to be honest, what you want to try to minimize is getting papers in your file drawer that will never see the light of day, because that's like wasted energy. And in all my work, I think I've only had one paper that went around the journal jibs and went around at SMJ that didn't see the light of day. And, um, and that was a tremendously frustrating experience and I don't want to relive it. <laughs> so, And I think we made a, a wrong decision by pulling it out of jizz. We had an R&R, &R, we should have stuck with it. Instead we went through SMJ and went to two rounds and got rejected anyway. So anyway, but anyway, so that's my advice. Don't think carefully about the strategy of this paper that you're planning on writing and where its home is, where its target journal is and where else it could go if it's a unique type of journal. Okay, can, can I just quickly follow up on that? Because sure. just on the... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, on the AMP piece, how do you decide then to pull the trigger that, okay, I'm going to take that risk? Is it more something you'd recommend for someone at your career stage, like post-tenure, than a junior faculty? Like, that's just too high of a risk, and I don't want to do that. Definitely. I mean, if I had to give advice to junior faculty, stick to empirical work, and st because that's the majority of the journal outlets. That's, you know, four of the five major journals do empirical work. Whereas theory work, if you don't hit AMR, who's going to publish, right? And I would not aim for, I mean, I'm, I'm an AE at AMP. I'm going to tell you, don't aim for that if you're a junior person. Um, it's just, it's as much effort as writing a regular paper. And chances are at where you're at, they're not considering it as a, a major hit. So you have two, you know, schools are different. You have to know what kind of evaluation you're going to be subject to. Um, there are some schools that just count and they treat everything the same and they have a, like a huge journal net and there's journals I've never even heard of and they treat them all the same. And if that is the university or school where you're at, then obviously numbers mean something and you need to have a lot of B journals in order to get the numbers. But you're, if you're at a school like, or like Irvine is, where if you have a B journal, it counts as a negative you definitely don't want to be throwing stuff at B journals. So, you know, at our, at Irvine, what they're looking at is, do you publish in the A-level journals? Do you have impact? And if the majority of your work or half of your work is in B-level journals, that's an indication you didn't make it into the A-level journal. So it's a mark against you rather than, oh, you have a more productive record. Does that make sense? So you it's have to kind of strategy, strategize it for where you're at. But to believe it or not, there's some very good schools that all they do is count. 
And I don't, you know, that's not, you know, something that I would do because I always look at, okay, I'd rather see some quality papers than a lot of non-quality papers. But if you're at an institution where five A hits or three A hits is not going to be sufficient, but six B hits would be, then figure out what you need to do. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. And thanks for the time. Thank you, Margaret. Um, I think there's another question from Rasban. Maybe a follow-up. Yes, um, not necessarily a follow-up to my question, but to something you mentioned. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, uh, all of your um, uh, papers are co-authored. Um, but at least in in the recent in the past, there has been a you know a push or say advice that you kind of receive when you go to conferences that as a PhD student that uh, or junior faculty that you should publish at least one sole author publication uh, paper. Um, I mean, your answer would probably be biased a little bit, but what would you advise junior faculty now? How do you? Uh, what do you know about other universities, what they require, and how is it seen? Um, I think the advice you're getting is, is what I've heard as well. Okay, so I don't think, you know, you're getting a one-off. I think um, everyone says to go out for tenure, you should have one solo piece, hopefully in an A-level journal, right? And that advice actually hasn't changed. I, uh, I had a solo piece in journal management studies. Um, so just to let you know, but um, I think um, that's still a good strategy because there's always going to be people who are going to question whether or not you can do it on your own. Um, so I don't think it's a bad idea, but I don't think you need more than one. So you'll need to figure it out. And, um, and my suggestion is when you have a solo piece and you're a junior scholar, that doesn't mean that somebody can't give you feedback on it, right? So you could get a senior scholar who's published in that journal, who knows your area, to give you feedback so that it, it gets to the kind of, because um, one of the things about working with co-authors is the papers improve. They're better quality as a result of having two people work on a paper. And when you're working by yourself, it's you know harder to get that higher level of quality all by yourself. So have someone else give you advice, have them read it, have you go through that re uh, editorial process on your own that you would normally do with a journal with the co-author so that it can reach the bar that you can get a publication in a good journal outlet. But I would agree that you still have to have one that, I mean, I personally don't think you need to uh, have one, but I think the general sentiment out there is that you need to have one. I mean, I've done already six tenure reviews this year and I've noticed that every single one of them has some solo article. <laughs> so I think the advice out there is being heard. But the majority, you know, all of their publications are co-authored. And I never had more than two co-authors. And most of the time I had just a single co-author. And a lot of these papers that I've seen lately have two, three, four co-authors. Um, so there's multiple co-authors, which I don't know how you manage, okay? Uh, I can only handle one co-author. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Margaret, we got some um, uh, questions that were uh, left by people when they registered. So if you don't mind, I'll ask you a couple of these. So there was a question about uh, reviewing. Uh, so what is your recommendation for a junior scholar, whether to review or not, since you know, if one wants to do it well, it takes quite a lot of time. 
And more in general, what kind of service do you think a junior scholar should be doing uh, before getting tenure? Um, it's a good career question. Um, hopefully, even when you're a doctoral student, you're already starting to do reviews for the academy. Um, I think that's a good place to start um, because they allow PhD students to review, um, whereas the journals don't. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, during your doctoral program, someone has run a seminar on how to do reviews and taught you how to do reviews so that you have some knowledge of reviews. There, there are some workshops the academy runs on doing reviews. Um, but, you know, when you're going up for tenure, the predominant thing they're going to look for are your publications, right? Um, the outlet and the number and um, the impact of the work. No one's going to look at your impact factor as a junior scholar, so you don't have to really worry, but they're going to want to know some kind of thread of the identity that you have in your research. And, um, and then the second most important thing for tenure is that you um, are a decent teacher. Um, you don't have to be an excellent teacher, you just need to be a decent teacher, which means you should be somewhere at the median of your department. And so those are probably the two most important things for tenure. And service, service to your school, service to your profession is much less. At, at the tenure stage. So I wouldn't get too over preoccupied about the need for service. Um, I think you need to be a member of your Academy of Management and uh, if you're a strategy scholar, SMS, and you should try to submit stuff to both, journal, both conferences to show that you're uh, actively participating in those conferences. And um, uh, you should review for them, uh, you review for the conferences. And then uh, it doesn't hurt to do some journal reviews. Um, you know, I think uh, when you're finally going up for tenure, that fifth or sixth year, a lot of schools like to see that you're on an editorial board. And so just one editorial board, I don't think they need to see more than that, but they'd like to see that you got invited to an editorial board because what that shows is you have standing in the field. Um, you're recognized by colleagues and you can't get invited to a review board without having reviewed at the journal. So you have to figure out which journal you want to maybe target to try to join their editorial board and then start doing reviews there because now everything is kind of automated, meaning it's manuscript central. And no one is going to be invited to be on an editorial board that hasn't done at least six reviews for them. So you have to do at least a half a dozen reviews for a journal before you're gonna be considered to be on the editorial board. So for instance, if you want to be on the editorial board of SMJ, then find some people that are AEs at that journal, and God knows they have a lot of AEs now, 25 or so. So find some AEs that are covering your area. So like for governance, my AEs would be Jerry McNamara, Emily Feldman, um, Anthea Zong, and say to them, look, I'd be willing to do reviews for you. Here's my area of expertise. Then they'll assign you, the, you to some papers and that way you get into Manuscript Central and you'll start becoming part of the review profile of the non-SMJ board members. But that's how you get into the system, right? Is you need to get into the system in order to do reviews. And once you've done six reviews in Manuscript Central, then there's a good chance that you're going to be invited to be on the board. But I have to say that this doesn't happen automatically. 
as most of you know, to even get on the editorial board, somebody probably will have to suggest that you join the editorial board. So that's why you have to have this sort of relationship with an AE that maybe sends papers your way. And then once you've done some, some paper reviews for them, then they can suggest uh, that you should be considered. But at SMJ, what I understand, the process is now automatic that once you've done six reviews, they calibrate and see how the, uh, all these reviews are, are evaluated by the AE and they calibrate how your the quality of your reviews and if your reviews are good you're supposedly automatically considered for the editorial board which i think is why smj's editorial board is so huge is because the system is automatic whereas before it was very much somebody having to lobby on your behalf but going back to my earlier comment you have to realize that most people are not on editorial boards when they go up for a tenure so view it as something that you would like to get, but focus on one journal, be it journal of management, journal management studies, whatever journal that you want to uh, kind of where you publish, because most likely if you've published there, you are going to be considered to be an automatic reviewer there anyway, because you go into the review database. So try to focus it. So don't do 20 reviews for five journals, try to do less reviews and specific to a journal. Does that make sense? So you get some traction at a particular journal so you can join the editorial board because ultimately that's what's important is to show that you've done reviews for Academy, done reviews in the profession, but that you're also doing reviews for at least one journal and you're hopefully getting an editorial board membership out of this at some point. But it's a good question. I, I, I think you've got to be careful Reviewing is very time consuming. And if you do too many of them, it's time away from research. So you need to limit yourself and say, I'm only gonna do um, the academy reviews and maybe 10 paper reviews during the year. And that's it. And I, I think that it's, 10 would be the max I would try to do as a junior scholar. I would say maybe six to eight, okay? If, if I was being realistic. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I think uh, 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 Samina had um, a couple of questions uh, also that she wanted to, to ask. Samina, are you there? Sure. Um, I have a bunch of fun questions, but I also have some actually other serious questions that I want to ask you first, Marguerite, that I think um, a lot of people might benefit from hearing your opinion. So um, one question I had was, what, what are interesting questions you think that we haven't answered yet or that you would encourage doctoral students to work on? Boy, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, again, I can, only, I can only surmise what I think is interesting from where I'm coming from because I don't cover a lot of topics. So, you know, I can't tell you anything about a lot of phenomena. I'm focused, right? So I only know my one corner of the universe. And um, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions there. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a landscape that allows for a lot more research. Um, I sometimes think that people think that CEO work is um, passe, that uh, we know everything there is to know and we know everything there is to know about governance and so forth because there's been so much work. You know, I think there's been several reviews of the government's literature as an example. But in reality, there's, that's not the case at all. There's um, a lot of um, opportunity to do research. And um, part of the reason why I think there's a lot of opportunity is that um, some of the tools being uh, applied are new. 
um, a lot of the uh, sophisticated analysis of uh, what people say and what people write are coming into play now when it comes to executives. Um, so there's ways of analyzing um, uh, what they say and uh, the content of what they say, the way they say it, that in the past there was none of this analysis, you know, because we didn't have the tools to do that. So um, the word analysis that's going on um, and, and even, um, you know, I've been very focused on the written, what is written, but like if you think about the analyst um, quarterly conference calls, um, they're all taped, they can all be um, put into these databases to be analyzed. Uh, what companies put out on social media, what executives um, put out on social media. So there's all ways of, of gathering data that has really not been analyzed and, and not examined in terms of um, strategy and executives and governance, you know, the topics that I would be interested in. So I think there's actually a lot of opportunity um, to examine issues that haven't really been examined. Um, and so I, I, I don't come from the perspective that because we have hundreds of papers already that the topic is well trod on ground and there's nothing interesting there. I disagree. I think there's a lot of data that we've never looked at. And there's also a lot of theories that have not really had a lot of traction that people are starting to um, examine. So um, from a governance standpoint, you know, agency theory has been the dominant paradigm. And um, Westfall and Zajac kind of opened up and said, look, there's a behavioral perspective as well. And the behavioral perspective has also taken root in economics. And so a lot of the uh, assumptions we made about behaviors are now being challenged and the behavioral lens coming from both finance as well as in governance in management is being increasingly more applied to a governance standpoint in terms of understanding what uh, individual decision making is about. So to me, there's a lot of interesting data and there's a lot of interesting theories that open up the landscape of corporate governance and corporate strategy that uh, research of old didn't use. So there's opportunity uh, for scholars uh, to do work in that area that would be new ground. And one of the things that you is very evident, whenever you're breaking path and starting something new, you're going to have a bigger impact than if you're doing another empirical study on a merger and acquisition funnel, da, 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 da. <laughs> and you're the 18th study doing the same thing in a slightly different moderator hypothesis, that's never going to have a major impact. So think about how your study varies so much from the existing literature that it might set a pattern and therefore get identified and therefore get referenced because that's ultimately what you want is you want to have an impact and you can't have an impact if you're the 18th study that has done the same thing and the only difference is you're using slightly different contexts or slightly different moderators. So you have to think, you know, what is it novel here? What is interesting here? And will it open up um, interesting uh, door looking at, at, a, at a particular issue? Um, that certainly happened, I mean, if you think about, um, uh, you know, just as a reference point, Don Hambrick was one of our STR uh, scholars as well, right? And his paper with um, Phyllis Mason on um, upper echelons in AMR is still today the most heavily cited paper in AMR. 
And I'm pretty sure it's the most heavily cited paper of any of the uh, management academy journals. I, I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. And you ask yourself why? Well, it opened up a field, right? And it opened up a field that had a huge impact. Well, I, you know, not everyone can write a paper like that, but I think even when they wrote it, they didn't think it was going to have that kind of impact. But the point, the reason it had an impact is because people followed. And um, so when you're at the beginning stages of a field, so I think this behavioral perspective is fairly new still, you have a much greater chance of having an impact than doing another agency theory paper. <laughs> okay, so, so in a, a nutshell, um, I think there's a lot of potential um, and, uh, you know, look around and uh, read the literature and see, okay, what would be interesting here? What would be different? So you touched upon this a little, but I'm curious. Um, you mentioned you, you wrote six tenure letters or evaluated six cases and many had solo papers. What do you look for, for what, or what advice would you give to junior faculty who are about to go up for tenure when you're evaluating external tenure cases? Uh, I mean, what advice I would give them as they are ready to go up for tenure, like in that year? Okay. In that year, yeah. as they're thinking about, you know, they're going to write a tenure packet and someone will be evaluating it. And so as one who's evaluated many, um, what do you look for as you're, as you're evaluating them? Well, um, I mean, at that point, the papers are written, right? <laughs> it's kind of late to publish the work at that phase. Uh, the advice I would give the last year, the year you're going up and putting your packet together is um, not to get too stressed out. <laughs> Uh, I, I have never met anyone that isn't stressed out, but I'm just going to tell you, try not to get stressed out. Um, at some point, it's going to be beyond your control, i.e. when you send, give the packet to your administrators and they deal with it, it's out of your control. But prior to that, um, the advice I would give in that year that you're going up is obviously, you know, you need a Vita with publications and you need a Vita with working papers. You have to show that you have working papers, hopefully in different stages of review, because what that shows is that the pipeline is there. So that if somebody's looking at the work and they're saying, ah, oh, you know, they don't quite have all the, the number of publications I'd like to see, but I see they've got uh, an R&R &R here and it's under second review here. So it's gonna happen. It's just a matter of a few more years, right? So you wanna give your reviewers a pipeline to show that even if they think you might be on the borderline or that your publications are the right number, but there's a lot of co-authors that the pipeline seems to indicate you're gonna continue to be productive. So that's an important thing I look for is what does the pipeline look, for, look like? And then the second thing, which is a piece of advice I would give just as counseling, is you need external letter writers. Most places will require that, right? And um, uh, you know, schools are different, but most schools have what they call an internal list and your list. So they'll ask you to come up with some names and then the school will come up with their names and then they'll pick whatever, 50% of each list or something like that. So, you need to be a little bit strategic in thinking about who you're going to put on your list. And I don't think a lot of people think that way when they think about letter writers. So um, there are going to be some obvious choices of letter writers for your case based on your subject matter. And so why put those people down on your list? Because they're going to be obvious people, right? Like for me, Don Hambrick was an obvious letter writer. <laughs> okay. 
he was not on my list, right? Because if the school didn't pick them, picked on, then, then they haven't done their homework. So you have to kind of think about who are the obvious letter writers given the topic I'm doing? And should I leave those, some of those or one or two of those for the, for the school to pick versus me? And why do I say that? Because there's a discounting that goes on. Your letter writer list is going to be considered your letter writers and the school letter writers are supposedly the school. So there's, the school letter writers are going to be considered a little bit more independent. So if you pick every single person in your topic area, you've eliminated the ability for the school to pick the person in your topic area. So think strategically about who you're going to put on your list versus who the school's going to put on their list. And you know, everybody knows nobody from the PhD institution that you've been at or co-author is ever going to be asked to write. So you have to think about who else is out there. And they generally don't ask to write a letter writer from more than one person from a school. So even if you have two people at Michigan that would be great letter writers, they're not gonna ask two people from Michigan. So um, think about, be strategic about how you think about who the letter writers that you're gonna pick and make sure that you leave some for the school list so that you haven't picked all the obvious candidates and they have no obvious candidates, right? So um, there's a strategy uh, to thinking about it. And then the last word of advice I would give is hopefully you've been developing a network over your six years of being an academic and even your doctoral students years in that over time you get to know some of these people that are potential letter writers because it's very important that you are not a ghost and by a ghost i mean somebody that nobody would recognize uh, in other words um i get asked to do a letter uh, on somebody and i have no clue who this individual is none whatsoever i've never seen them never met them and i'm being asked to write a letter now why is that a problem because you get asked to, the people who get asked to write letters get asked too many times. And so, um, the, especially like journal editors and people at really reputable institutions are going to be probably getting 50 or 60 requests a year. It's not unfounded. Um, so the question is, who are you gonna write a letter for? You're not gonna write 50 or 60 or even 20 letters. So you're gonna pick who you're gonna write letters for. And if you don't know who that person is, you're gonna decline to write a letter. So it's very important that you're visible, that you've networked, that people get to know you so that you've met them. And then when the request comes in, they're more likely to say yes rather than no. And so that's the positive of having a network is that you're gonna get a good chance that that person's gonna sit down and write a letter. And let me tell you, writing a letter is like a lot of work, a lot of work. So for somebody to be willing to do it, they, it's 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 a big thing. That's why if you're a ghost, you're not going to be asked. The, the person may not want to do it because it is a lot of work. And it's not like it's recognition. No one will know that you've written that letter for them. You're not going to get any accolades. So you're doing this as a service, but no one will know that you've done this service. So that's why it's important that you've networked and you've connected with the people in your area. You know, um, when I was a junior scholar, I would put pan panels together for the academy and I would invite the people who were senior in my area and to put on a panel as panel members. And I would act as chair and I usually had a colleague that was co-chair with me. 
And then we would run a panel. And this is how I got to know a lot of the senior scholars in management is not so much like Jay Barney and I don't have work that's really simple uh, complementarily. But Jay was on a, at least one or two panels I put together at Academy or SMS. And so over time, I got to know Jay. And over time, I got to know other scholars that way. So that by the time that you go off for tenure, you're not an unknown. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marguerite. We have a couple of um, other questions. One from Yuping. Oh, thank you. So, um, thank you, Margaret. So, uh, you have lots of industry experience that um, lead you to do uh, your research. So, I was wondering if you have any suggestions for PhD students who don't have much industry experience to do phenomenon-driven research. Well, um, you read the business papers is where I would start and become more familiar with what's going on. Um, I, I don't know, what, what university are you at? Um, I'm the uh, University of Colorado. Oh, Colorado, okay. Um, so if you're in the US, you know, um, try to get um, familiar with what's going on in industry. So if you have an interest in technology, then follow what's going on in the technology field. If you have an interest in entrepreneurship, then follow what's going on in entrepreneurship. If you're really, really interested in, um, you know, big Fortune 500, then follow what's, what's going on. Pick your terrain and then, you know, follow what's going on. Um, all business schools today have a lot of outreach activities which enable you to connect with the local business communities. University of Colorado would be a good example. So reach out to the school with the communities they already are attached to. I'm sure they have a, a financial center, a, what they call a wealth management center. I'm sure they have an entrepreneurship center and I'm sure they probably have some other centers. You know, like we have a real estate center and we have an information technology center. And all these centers interact with the business community and it's very easy to get to know some elements of the business community through them. So it's not a lot of effort um, to sort of find out what's going on. Now, the advantage of finding out what's going on is it can drive your research, but it also can give you an opportunity to do, uh, ask questions of someone in an informal manner to see how robust your, your, your uh, thinking is about a phenomenon. So that's the advantage of it. And then lastly, it could potentially be an avenue for getting research site, right? To collect data itself. So especially if you're in the entrepreneurship space, there's always this issue of um, being able to collect data because it doesn't necessarily exist in these public databases. So there's all sorts of ways of sort of connecting and um, finding out more about the phenomena. So I'll use an example of the hedge fund phenomenon that I was interested in. So I got interested in Actives Hedge Fund very, very early on because I saw them attacking big corporate customers and I was kind of following it in the news. And then it started to come home and much more closely because we, I saw several companies locally that got hit. One big one was Allergan as an example. But even before Allergan, I was already doing research in the area. And one of the things that I did is um, I um, used our Dean's uh, advisory board and uh, several of those people sit on boards and I actually uh, talked to them and some of them sat on a board of company that had been um, targeted by an activist. And so I started to do some qualitative 
you know, informal conversations, half hour, an hour, to ask them, I said, would you mind having a conversation? And it wasn't like I was gonna use this as a data in my uh, analysis, but it was to inform me better what was going on in these uh, targets, campaigns, because there's no way you know what's really going on until you start talking to somebody that's at the, at the fire, right? And especially with, with regards to executive decision-making. So use your contacts that you might have through the school to learn from people in practice what is really going on. And it's, it's really amazing how much you can learn about something. And it also may lead you to realize things that you didn't know, that it might reveal areas of interest and potential areas for inquiry, meaning research questions, that you wouldn't have known without talking to them. So I really encourage you to spend the time. Now, it takes time and it takes effort, but the actual amount of time to talk to somebody is, might be at most an hour. So it's not as consuming as sitting at your desk writing papers, but it's just a different type of task, right? And sometimes, depending on the nature of your students, your students provide avenues, right? I knew nothing about the oil industry. I, like I said, I worked in the auto industry. I know nothing about the oil industry. I mean, the oil industry is a completely different animal than any industry you'll ever run into. And I was at Rice as a professor one year and all my students work in the oil industry. Well, guess what? I have to get averse in the oil industry. Otherwise, my talking to them is gonna make no sense. And again, I sat down with a couple of my students and discovered what process in, uh, industries are like, because that's what it is, it's a process industry. So you really can, believe it or not, in some brief conversations, really learn a lot about an industry and understand the landscape and become better informed. And it is not a huge undertaking, but it requires initiative and effort. And you know, I think academics have a tendency not to feel comfortable sometimes talking to business people. I don't know why. Um, I really don't think you should be um, afraid to talk to business people. The one thing that I've learned over, over all these years is most people that are successful in business are very, very smart. And most academics are very smart. And so that the level of conversation you'll have with the business person will instantly get to a level where there's a lot of knowledge sharing as opposed to a casual conversation in the, in the grocery store, <laughs> okay? So it's a different kind of experience. Like I've talked to CEOs, plenty of them. And let me tell you, they are as engaging as an academic and when you start to talk to them. So it's a pretty high level conversation that can be pretty insightful and they enjoy talking to academics. So um, they don't, you know, they don't view talking to an academic beneath them. They enjoy talking to the academic because they want to know what we're thinking and what we're doing. So it's, it's an interesting conversation to have. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. It's very helpful. There's also a question from Michelle. Hi, Marguerite. Thank you so much Hi. for having this session. Um, so I have a question. Uh, so I've been, I'm a late stage doctoral student and I'm really learning this art of like publication and what theory is and what thinking like an academic is. And I, I'm realizing the next stage is like mentoring doctoral students, like once you're faculty. So I was curious what your approach for mentoring doctoral students and junior faculty is, and if there's a way that helps in kind of learning this really tacit knowledge. So where, what school did you say you were at? Oh, I'm at the University of Washington. And, and that you have a position there or you're still a doctoral student? Oh, I'm a doctoral student. I'm a... Oh, okay. So you're already like uh, thinking about being a professor. 
Well, I'm thinking about next steps. Like, what is when you're junior faculty? Can yeah. I tell what my co-authors are doing for me? Well, okay. Um, uh, mentoring doctoral students. Well, I would not advocate that for any junior faculty member. First of all, um, stay away from them. Um, get your own work done. Um, try not to work with doctoral students for at least a couple years. And why I say that is, um, I hate to sound so negative, but um, doctoral students are very time consuming. And um, you as a junior scholar don't have that time. And you're it's not just the training, but you're like, you tr you're trying to do your own work and trying to get published. And at the same time, you're trying to help somebody else, right? So I'm gonna use that analogy of a double drowning. Um, you're gonna drown and they're gonna drown you. So stay away from them and view them as a threat and don't do anything till you've got some publications under your belt. Once you've had a few publications, then you can start to tackle doctoral students. When I came to Irvine, um, uh, there was no uh, faculty in the strategy area and somehow they had admitted doctoral students in the strategy area. There was a, a PhD guy from, in econ that had admitted them, but he didn't, he was not trained in strategy. He, you know, he was much older. And so these doctoral students all came to me and I spent all time with each of them and they all were like hungry to work with somebody to help them get their dissertation done and so forth. And after a few weeks of kind of seeing the landscape, I think there were four doctoral students, believe it or not, of various vintages. I suddenly began to realize I was going to drown taking care of these uh, lost souls. And it, I would have never admitted them because I would not have admitted students without having faculty in the area, but someone did, okay? And I felt really bad for them and I'm a pretty empathetic person, but I also realized they were gonna kill me. So I basically said no, because I needed to get my work done, meaning I needed to get my papers out and I could not undertake the burden of training them because first of all, they hadn't been trained. They'd never worked with anyone on a research project. It wasn't like I was inheriting something that I could run with and get publications out. So be very, very, very careful um, uh, that first couple of years until you get your own publications out. And even now, you know, um, I would say that doctoral students, um, I mean, I enjoy working with them. I love having doctoral students, but to be quite honest, they're not the same as having a colleague. A colleague, if you publish with a colleague, if you work with a colleague, it's a two plus two equals five. A doctoral student is two plus two equals three. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's a negative. They, they are not equal contributor. They can't be, okay? Maybe they're really good with the data. Maybe they're good with data collection, but trust me, they're not as well trained as you are yet and you're training them. And so, and that's the, that's the problem. And it's not anything negative about them. It's just the nature of the beast that doctoral students are going to be this way. So you have this issue where you can't afford to carry somebody when you're trying to get your work out. At the same time, eventually you do want to mentor doctoral students. So you have to decide at what point this is appropriate for you and when you can take it. As long as you have good colleagues to work with and get papers out, that's where I would put my energy and I wouldn't put my energy with doctoral students. I would worry about that closer to once you have tenure, then start to think about, okay, I really want to pay back and really help. 
that doesn't mean that you can't do doctoral seminars. It doesn't mean that you can't be on a doctoral committee, but do not be a chair of a doctoral committee. Absolutely not. Do not do that until after you have tenure. And do not sit there and start a research project with a doctoral student. The only way I would work with a doctoral student if I was a junior faculty is if I really needed somebody to help me with data collection and data analysis, and it was gonna be my paper, and they're gonna be second author only because of the support function that they provide. But other than that, I would not start gearing them and helping them with their dissertations and helping them with their thesis, because you need to focus on your work. You need to make sure to protect yourself and make sure that you get work done and work with colleagues that can help you get work done. I mean, I hate to sound so negative, but I don't know. That's just my view on doctoral students, okay? I like them, but you have to realize as a junior faculty, they're going to kill you. So um, on a softer note, I think Samina had a fun question. Uh, Samina, over to you. Sure, we, we've taken a lot of your time, Marguerite. So we usually ask a, a bunch of fun questions at the end. So these are just speed fire questions, all right? So favorite dessert? Boy, um, okay, I, I, I actually make desserts. I'm a big, big baker. Um, I, I know it's just to give a rapid response, but the reason I can't give a rapid response is I rarely eat dessert, okay? <laughs> What do you like to yes, bake? Yes, I like to bake, but I, I, I'm not a big consumer of what I make, okay? Um, uh, so what I is your I, biggest hit? What, huh? do others like the, what do others like the most? What is your biggest hit? Uh, oh, I make, um, uh, well, I make a lot of fruit tarts, you know, like um, raspberry tart, um, uh, uh, start, you know, all sorts of different tarts. Like I made a cherry galette last night for dinner. Um, uh, I make a lot of, yeah, baked bake goods. Um, I make scones for breakfast. I make muffins for breakfast. I make uh, chocolate cherry bread, but I don't eat most of everything, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, so I can't answer what my favorite dessert is, okay? I, I can't, uh, if I think of it, I'll let you know, uh, Savina. <laughs> all right, well, I'm, I'm jealous. Your family members are very lucky, so. <laughs> What what um, kind of books do you like, fiction or nonfiction? Okay, here's another question <laughs> I'm going to defer on. I don't have time to read, okay? <laughs> I read the Financial Times, I read the New York Times, I read um, a lot of trade publications. Um, I'm spending all day um, on my laptop reading, I'm doing reviews, I'm, I'm writing tenure letters and full professor promotion letters. The last thing I have time for is reading fiction and nonfiction. But if I was going to read something, it's definitely going to be nonfiction. And I can show you what I'm reading now. Um, uh, so I'm pretty much, I like to read factual stuff. Okay, so this is my read uh, in the last few weeks. I don't know if you can read, see the title. It fits the time. It's yes. The Great Influenza. It's a great book, by the way. Um, uh, uh, a friend of mine recommended it. Um, it's about the 1918 influenza, not the current one. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the reason I like reading it is I like uh, learning about stuff. So I'm not a fiction reader. I like learning about something um, when I read. And this book, the thing, the reason I would recommend it is not because of, it's about the influenza, but because it talks about the history of the medical profession 
which I found very, very, very interesting. Um, I come from a family of physicians, um, like three generations. And so it was very interesting to read how backwards the US medical profession was at the turn of the century. And I never realized that, you know, my grandfather was a physician and he, when he went to um, university and medical school, he had to be uh, versed in Latin, German, and his native language, which was Dutch. And um, all the training in the medical school was either in Latin or German. This was at the University of Leiden. 